0: the risk was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, we consider various market scenarios to help prepare for the certainty of uncertainty. Each month, we examine top-of-mind economic or market topics and consider the probability and possibility of various scenarios that could impact your investment portfolios. These scenarios are to stress testing like photos are to social media. Remember to look at where you're going to, not what you're going through. Welcome to Weighing the Risk. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, we will weigh some of the potential scenarios and risk from the 2022 midterm elections. What are some possible future scenarios for the stock market, interest rates, and inflation? That's with our guest, Matt Bartolini, Managing Director and Head of Spider America's Research. Welcome to The Weighing the Risk. I'm Rusty Vaneman, the Chief Investment Strategist at Orion Portfolio Solutions. And welcome, Matt. Hey, Rusty. Thanks for having me on. You got it. Well, to set the stage for today's podcast, again, the motivation is to help financial advisors and investors prepare for the certainty of uncertainty, to consider what is probable in the markets, but also to consider what is possible. As financial advisors and investors, we have to recognize what we can't control and what we cannot. As for what we can control, we can analyze portfolio risk. We can diversify portfolios. And to a large extent, we can also manage expectations. And to help with each of these, that's why we consider various market scenarios. The scenarios that we discuss in this podcast are built off concerns that are top of mind for many investors. As one of the founders of Hidden Levers... Raj said often, these scenarios are to Orion Risk Intelligence stress testing, like photos are to social media such as Instagram and Facebook. Okay, with that all said, let's talk risk and scenarios. And let's bring back in our guest, Matt Bartolini, Managing Director and Head of Spider America's Research. And Matt, before we get started, I'm bringing over a tradition from my other podcast called Orion's The Weighing Machine. And perhaps this is the most important question, and that is, what would your walk-up song be? And I know this is going to be a fun question because you have had multiple walk-up songs used professionally. What is that song we can hear in the background?
1: Yeah, so it's funny that our our off-site every year, if you're speaking at it, you you do get a walk-up song. So I actually think a lot about this in the past, this past year I used. Of course, I'm from Boston, so shipping up to Boston from the Dropkick Murphys, that's obviously one I've used. Always awesome. And then Voodoo Child from Jimi Hendrix, which also doubles as was Hulk Hogan's walk-up music when he was Hollywood Hogan in the NWO. <laughs> so those would be my two, because I've actually used both of them
0: nice i love that you know i guess we'll get a little voodoo with some of these scenarios here coming up so that's great well before we really dive into the meat of today's interview just tell us a little bit more about your background and how you came to your position at spider research
1: yeah so i've been at state street proper for 17 years i've seen a a multitude of different areas of the the overall business started out on the bank side i was actually in the bank side during the financial crisis which is really interesting you're doing a lot of Different accounting and custody work back then, and then you know over to the asset management arm, working with the PM teams, and then you know coming over to the ETF business and working on the research team, and then ultimately heading it up and going through all the different background I have of you know accounting and financial management and, and just intellectual curiosity. It was really a natural fit, and ETFs are just you know a great area to be. And we work with a lot of great different clients about you know solving different portfolio objectives too.
0: Yep. How much are you on the road, Matt? Are you on the road a lot talking to advisors and investors? Uh, the virtual road these days uh, in the
1: last yep. couple of years. But uh, yeah, you know, we travel a decent amount. And I have a lot of different client discussions through WebExes and Zoom calls now about different portfolio construction topics, particularly given this market environment where you know, stocks and bonds on a global basis are both in bear markets. And sort of you know, how do you think about the different risks associated with portfolio construction right now, but also where some of the opportunities are uh, and then you know, just some general market commentary too. Definitely on the virtual road these days more than the physical road.
0: Yeah, cover a lot more ground in some respects too. And that. All right, so well, given this podcast focuses on risk, how do you define risk? How do you think advisors and investors should think about this important topic?
1: So, you know, it's it's kind of like the VIG, right? It's the anti, it's your blind that you pay within poker in terms of getting your return. You, know, you have to assume some risk for some form of return and risks is also around trade-offs, too. You know, a lot of people right now are going to cash, and that is an associated trade-off. You're trading off the ability for you know, essentially no downside, but also no upside. You know, and obviously, the markets are inherently volatile right now, and that downside is protection and is valuable. But if the markets do rally, you can miss out. So that's the way I think about risks. There's always constantly these trade-offs. You know, if you want to diversify your portfolio by buying long treasuries, And you're de-risking your equity allocation. Well, now you've just increased your duration risk. These measures of trade-offs, and even cash has risk associated with it, even though it's the risk-free rate. The risk of missing out on any upside or any, you know, risk premium, for instance. So it's all about trade-offs.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well said. All right, so let's dive into the really the meat of today's podcast and. You know, it's a leading top of mind issue with many financial advisors and investors. And of course, that is the midterm election. You know, what impact might it have on the economy and the markets? What's a possible kind of baseline expectation? What's most likely probable? What's a good case scenario? And what could be a bad case scenario? So before I attempt to kind of summarize some potential scenarios, I'd love to review some top questions regarding the election. I know you and your team have put a lot of work into this topic, and I just want to note to the listeners that we are recording this at the end of September, so a lot of this stuff is fluid, but as of the end of the third quarter, I have a handful of questions, and the first one is, is, how does the current electoral math look right now?
1: Yeah, so currently the Democrats control 48 seats, Republicans 50 seats, and then there's two independents that caucus with the Democrats. Within the midterms, within the Senate, there are 14 Democrat-controlled seats up for a re-election, 21 Republican-controlled seats. So among those 35 seats, per the Cook Political Report, they basically say there's only three that are essentially toss-ups at this point. You know, they can go either way. There are about seven that are leaning in the current direction of where they sit. So you know, there's essentially 10 that could be in the mix, but really just three. And those three toss-ups are Georgia... Nevada and Wisconsin. The House is completely different. You know, every two years you go for re-election, so every single House seat is up for re-election at this point. Right now, the Democrats hold the advantage of two twenty-one to two twelve. And again, if we go back to that you know, political report, which is a great resource for you know watching election trends, there's thirty-one seats that are are up for a toss-up. And amid those thirty-one seats, Republic forecasted also. So you have 31 that are toss-ups, but then there's another 10 that are essentially going to be flipped from Democrat to Republican, which is why the odds right now are that the House is likely to flip.
0: Yeah. So what is sort of like, just kind of breaking down some more like the kind of the consensus view right now and how this is all going to play out?
1: Yeah. So, you know, midterms are generally a referendum on the current president's performance and agenda. Presidents historically lose roughly about 30 seats of their own party. Within the midterm election, that's been quite consistent throughout time. There's actually only two years to midterm elections dating back as far as, you know, I think 1914, where that didn't happen, where the incumbent party of the president didn't lose seats. And on average, you know, they lose about 29 to 30. And if we look at Biden's approval rating, again, I'm just using, you know, I'm not making any sort of my own views or what have you. It's just all the data out there. Biden's approval rating right now, 44%. uh, And that correlates, if we look at, you know, where a 44% rating would be, that correlates to roughly a 38-seat loss from the Democrats within the House. If we look at what, you know, projections, you know, 538.com, those folks, generic balloting, they only indicate a seven-seat loss. So you have, on average, 30 Approval rating says, you know, in the 40s, and then balloting says about seven. A lot of error terms associated with that, but they all point in the same direction. It's likely going to be a loss for the Democrats within the House. Within the Senate, the consensus is that of those toss-ups, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania are going to go to Democrats. they will give the 52 to 48 majority, so Democrats are likely to retain the Senate. When you look at all the odds, whether it's predicted or 538, roughly they're projecting Democrats' taking or holding on to the Senate and Republicans flipping the house, but projections are projections. And, you know, we saw, I think 538 famously, you know, they projected only a 30% chance of Donald Trump winning presidency. And obviously that was not in line with the projections. And
0: 538 generally does some pretty good work too. That just yeah. goes to show how hard it is. Fantastic hey, so us. a quick tangent question is, so I love betting markets. You know, it's not sentiment. It's somebody actually betting. So there's like predicted.org. What do you think about that? Do you follow it? Do you think it's better than polls, worse than polls, or it's just another data point?
1: It's just another data point. And when thinking about models, always an ensemble picture works best. So you can use polling, you can use, look at what 538 does. They have such a huge, robust model process. And then the predicted odds, you know, it's very clear cut. This is what the current public is betting on. There's, you know, polling, there's can be obviously biases to it because you're not polling everybody. Betting, you know, again, it's not everybody betting, but it's those who are betting can you know, have an impact on it. But it has to be just one data point of many when you're looking at some of the election trends.
0: Yeah, you're definitely a good CFA. It's the mosaic approach. I think that's been drilled in my head from the CFA studies. (laughs) It's always a mosaic. Another quick tangent, just a comment. You know, obviously we're talking about such an emotional topic, politics. And it's really, I think, tricky for, you know, for, you know, you and I to go on the road and talk about it. I was just at a, Conference last week, I was not on the stage. Two other people were, and they were talking about politics. And one of them was like a political consultant with 50 years' experience. And it was fascinating just hearing him talk because every time he mentioned a name, whether it was a Republican or Democrat, you could feel an emotional reaction in the room. You could feel like negative energy or positive energy. And there was even a question like, who were in your 50 years of experience, who have you been most impressed by? And you mentioned people from both sides of the aisle, and it was just interesting to just feel that energy in the room when people were talking about it. Of course, one of the things I've loved to do over the years is, I need to kind of update these studies, but once upon a time, there was a study that showed that investors from a certain party had a better return, but the president was from their party and then four years later, you know, when it was a different party, was a president, it was the investors that were of that party had a better return. And it's been that way each time. It's like, gosh, don't let the politics influence you know, how you invest if you can. That said, I do know financial advisors who made a very clear stance, very conservative. If you, in fact, there's one advisor I knew who raised so much in money. So I'll give you a gun if you become a client. (laughs) I think it was remarkable, you know, and all these different political orientations. It's like their niche. All right. So that said, let's just talk markets. And I think this stuff is fascinating. Just how do markets typically behave around midterm elections?
1: Yeah. You know, so it's, You know, sample size, there's a decent amount of sample size in looking at how markets behave during different midterm elections and election cycles overall. And some of them can be more statistical quirks, but when you see a lot of patterns and consistency in them, you know, you do want to pay attention. So, you know, midterm elections, leading up to it, historically, it has been quite volatile. You know, the average entry-year decline in the years leading up to a midterm election is roughly around 19%. And if you look at all the other years of a presidential term, the average entry-year decline is around 12 to 13%, and that's going all the way back to the 60s. What is interesting is that post the midterms, the average one-year return starting on October 31st of the S&P 500, dating back to the 1960s, is about 16%. And that 16% is far greater than your typical rolling one-year return post in October That rolling one year return post October every single year is an average 8%. So all else equal, one could pose it that returns post midterm elections one year following October are above average. And this also has, you know, historical significance even on a one and three month basis. I also think it's really interesting that the one year following the midterm election has never been a negative return period for the S&P 500 dating back all the way to 1939. You know, an 80-year span, we've never had negative runs in that one year following. So markets generally behave well past the midterm elections.
0: You know, just think about this year and such huge news events, you know, the economic data, the most of this or most of that in 40 years, the uh, geopolitical conflict. I mean, there's been a lot of huge news stories. But if you only knew the presidential election cycle and seasonals, that basically describes how the market has behaved this year. It's been pretty remarkable. Now that I've said that, <laughs> do you think we're gonna get a repeat coming into election and out of the election? Well, 2022, 23, will our experience around this midterm be the same it has been historically?
1: So it's kind of interesting. It's setting up a little bit to be like that, right? So we've had an entry-year decline of 24%, which is in line with what we've seen historically of like really severe entry-year declines leading up to a midterm. I think the key factor that we've seen historically, however, though, of why the performance post-midterms has been strong is that you start to have more policy certainty post-midterms. You start to have equity markets start to anticipate better monetary and fiscal policy following a midterm. You know, if you think about how we said earlier that a midterms are a referendum on the current agenda of the president and that the incumbent party usually loses a lot of seats in the House. So then you're sort of on your back foot, right, as a party. So what do you do? You just throw money at them, right? You either increase fiscal stimulus, you start doing some legislative actions, you start to become more pro-growth. So you can get reelected at the next general election, you know. So that has been a historical precedent. Now we're probably unlikely to have a lot of fiscal policy given the inflationary dynamics, and monetary policy is highly unlikely to become accommodative in the next, you know, six to twelve months. It's probably going to remain quite restrictive. So there's actually less in this 2022. There's less flexibility for a policy environment to be conducive for positive, above average equity returns like we've seen in midterms, right? The policy environment is much, much different than what we've seen in past years. And I think a fair comparable is 1978. So in 1978, you had high inflation, weak economic growth that led to a really brief and shallow recession in in 1980. You had the Fed, they hiked three and a half half percent, 350 basis point of rate hikes in that year. Right now, the Fed's done 325 in November. Your forecast is you another 50, so it would be the most hawkish a Federal Reserve has been at the time of midterms. Now, in 1978, we still had positive returns in that subsequent one-month period, but it was you know six percent, and you know that is still positive, which is great, but it's below that historical average. So, what to expect? Expect going forward, you know, we have an economy that is, you know, there's a signpost of a recession. We look at the LEI year-over-year change, it's negative. You have, you know, waning earning sentiment. You have this impending, you know, fiscal gridlock scenario with a split Congress. So, I think the direct impact of midterms will be largely muted. I think the path and pace of the equity markets are going to be you know based upon what the economy is doing and what the Federal Reserve does beyond election day. so I think I wouldn't expect that above average market returns. I would sort of expect you know either in line average or below average if you're still you know anchored on this thesis that equity markets do well past the midterms,
0: yeah. Okay. I'm going to raise the heat on you a little bit. I mean, I wouldn't say the last one wasn't easy to answer, but to some extent, I want to kind of put the feet to your fire a little bit and ask for, now, what about in a scenario if the Republicans sweep? Two questions about that. What are the chances the Republicans could sweep? And if they do, what happens to the markets and economy?
1: Yeah. So right now, you know, again, we'll go back to the great work from 5:38 you know, I was like to cite those guys right now, it's 30% chance that that could take place, right? So it's still a chance, right? Blood Christmas said, he's still giving me a chance. <laughs> and, you know, when looking at it, what does that mean? So looking at it from a sector perspective, you would think that, you know, legacy energy stocks would do well, because you start to get pulled back in some of the more climate forward initiatives that the current session of Congress has been putting forth. So legacy energy stocks could potentially do well. Healthcare, so drug pricing reform included in some of the Inflation Reduction Act, pulling that back is probably going to be really tough. But directionally, with Republicans taking control of both chambers, you know, that could be helpful. You know, because you wouldn't be a, so much momentum in more severe drug pricing reform. You also have the fact that, you know, biotech firms, they do have higher tax rates from a global perspective. So if you'd also think the Republicans would really restrict some tax reform. So, you know, healthcare would potentially be another sector alongside legacy energy. And then defense, you know, defense spending, I think we would likely see, you know, there's probably going to be some bipartisan support there alongside infrastructure. But as we know, Republicans historically have been a big proponent of increasing defense spending. Defense spending has been declining over the past few years. And then obviously, you know, there'll probably be some saber rattling associated with, you know, China and what they're doing, or potentially could be doing associated with you know, the Taiwan Strait. So I think you'd see some positive impacts to defense stocks. Obviously, we still have the Russia-Ukraine situation going on. So, it's going to be another tailwind associated with defense. So, to summarize, it would be your legacy energy, some infrastructure, defense, and then relative positioning for pharma.
0: Yeah. All right. Keep the crystal ball out. So, it's the flip side of the coin. What happens if the Democrats sweep and what are the odds of them doing so?
1: So, odds are actually roughly the same, around 30%. So that's why it's almost, when you read all this research, it kind of seems like a foregone conclusion that it's gonna be a split Congress, but there's always that chance. The error term is is still pretty large at 30%. And you only have a handful of seats that are up for a toss up, so it could go either way. And, you know, We definitely still have a lot of time left before folks go to the ballot box. So from a demographic perspective, it's the inverse, right? So you'd probably see more clean energy initiatives, more refundable tax credits. I think you'd probably see some more focus on taxes, particularly the buyback tax, you know, that could likely go up. And I think relatively speaking, firms that have a high amount of buybacks would likely be impacted, but relatively the firms that are focused on dividends would probably do better, right? Like dividend stocks over buyback stocks. I think defense spending still gets you know put forth in terms of initiatives. I think there's gonna be some bipartisan support, again, going back to the China situation, as well as Russia, Ukraine. And then lastly, you know, while Medicaid has been restricted in some states, you've been unable to get federal plans associated with, I think, you know, a dozen or so states, providing that federal plan for individuals through Medicaid would be part of that fiscal agenda, and that could benefit, you know, your healthcare services firms, your HMOs, your hospitals, and things along those lines. The last one would be around, again, infrastructure. So there's some similarities, but I think on the Democrat side, it'd be more on broadband, water funding, and things along those lines. So I would say, you know, clean energy, defense, healthcare services, dividend stocks, and then low tax sectors like retail or real estate, as opposed to really high tax sectors, because there's probably to be more tax reform.
0: You know, it's really remarkable to think about, you know, again, usually midterms, the market starts to do well in October because there's some clarity about who the winners could be. But right now it's like a coin flip. I mean, at the chance of Republican sweep and a Democrat sweep to, you know, it's uh, gridlock, I mean, all of them almost have the same chance. So there could be a lot of volatility in October as these numbers sort of jostle around a little bit. So the last question before I kind of pitch some of my scenario ideas to you for your feedback is are there other market related election topics we should be considering?
1: Well, I think the big thing is if the consensus view is for a split Congress. You'll still likely get support for defense and infrastructure because those are two bipartisan topics that are going to garner support. The last thing is, if we have a split Congress, beware of political theatrics around debt ceiling debate. That's going to come up. Government shutdowns. That's going to come up. And historically, the headlines are worse than the actual impact. And so what that does is just creates near term volatility. Because, you know, it's both sides eventually figure it out. It's just it takes to the, you know, the 11.59 at night. But the big deal is, you know, that's just going to add to an already volatile environment. So I still think this idea of being defensively positioned can be helpful, even if you have that split Congress because of those political theatrics are not going to mitigate volatility. It's likely to stir up short-term, near-term volatility and negative sentiment.
0: Yeah. All right, so I have sketched out some possible scenarios here, and I want to throw them at you. First, sort of a baseline case, and then sort of a worst case scenario or ugly situation, and then kind of a, a good scenario. The baseline case is, I think we kind of have come to this conclusion, is like what well, could have a typical post-election market reaction is we've talked about the stock market in 2022 has held remarkably to the historical presidential election cycle form, and so it could be reasonable to expect more of the same. And you know, some of the stats that you've mentioned as well, midterm election years, the market is volatile towards the beginning, usually more flattish in the 12 months preceding And Obviously, we're down more than that over the last 15 midterms, but still nonetheless, in terms of not providing gains and being volatile, that's held the form. Again, in typical midterm election years, the stock market generally rallies after the election. And again, the 12 month post-midterm election returns been around 16%. And that's where again over the last 15 midterms and i think you mentioned this as well the s&p 500 has not experienced a negative absolute price return during the full year after a midterm election since 1939 that goes back 80 years so to kind of have a probable scenario to summarize is stocks gain what they typically do over 12 months so this is called around 15 percent 10-year treasury yields can move modestly higher but not a parallel shift or anywhere near the expectations the federal reserve is expected to do with short-term rates and inflation drops in the months ahead, maybe 6% or below in the months ahead. Sort of a baseline expectation. What do you like? What do you not like?
1: So I like the, the baseline, the 15% return. You know, I think that's a fair approximation, just given what we've seen from historical concepts. You know, it could, probably could be reined in just a little bit. But again, that's probably recency bias because the market's been so volatile. We've had such negative returns in the last few days, which, yeah, again, that could be more of a signal of a uh, bottoming because the technicals are weren't so bad. But I think that baseline scenario is fair.
0: Yep. cool. Okay, let's go to worst case scenario. Now I will admit on the worst case scenario, I think all my conclusions here are plausible and they have historical precedents, but they might have a little more juice. Again, sort of the idea is we talked about the probable and really kind of think about what is possible. So I guess you can see my tails might be a little wider, but nonetheless, so let's just say the economic fundamentals you know, defeat the common post-election rallies. So one, what if inflation remains unexpectedly high? Again, historically, we look at a lot of studies, they're all setting up that suggest really strong 12-month returns. The fly in the ointment of many of these is like, oh, except during the time when inflation was high, that's number one. And number two, what if we do slip into a recession? We've never had a recession in the third year. So in those particular cases, that could kind of mess up some of those studies sort of one analog or it's kind of one template of looking at is kind of going back to the 70s as well again inflation you mentioned 78 as well you know if the fed continues raising rates because inflation remains persistently higher or liquidity is being drained out a little bit i mean these are a lot of significant headwinds for the market and also one of the thing is when the unemployment rate is this low it's kind of counterintuitive but the stock market tends to produce poor returns in the next 12 months, particularly when the unemployment rate is low and rising. So you summarize all this. My example for the stock market is to look at the nifty 50 bear market from the 70s, something I did not experience professionally, though I studied a lot in school and seemed like that was the war we're always getting ready to battle against for all these decades. Maybe we finally have that war to battle. But stocks lost 50%, 5-0% during that time frame. So if you look at the intraday high that we had here in January and you drop it 50%, that means we'd lose a, approximately another 35% from these levels. Now, if we did have a big loss like that, I would expect that 10-year treasury yields would drop a uh, flight to safety. While I do think if you look the multi-decade bull market in bonds, it's probably over. I think we could finally say that. But if we do a 50% retrace from the recent highs back to the lows from a couple of years ago, that would take 10-year treasury yields all the way down to 2.25. That sounds pretty dramatic. But if you look at a long-term chart, it probably wouldn't look that dramatic. And then let's just say inflation just hangs out at current levels. So, call it 8% or so. That's a pretty dramatic scenario. Give me some color commentary. What do you think?
1: Yeah, this is some pretty wide tails on the downside. I'm glad you said wide instead of wild. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it could be wild, too. There'll be a wild ride. Hopefully that doesn't happen. Another, you know, 35% down. I think that any move like that would have to be irrespective of, like, any election impact. Like The election would be almost like a rounding, a you know, rounding term. You know, I think not go to probably a little bit too wide, but the growth scare I think feels right in terms of the tenure. If there is a severe growth scare, recessionary unemployment starts to go higher. I mean, we obviously saw some news from some big tech companies in the last few days about restructuring. You know, that's you know, not a good sign for you know, these high cash flow tech firms start doing some restructuring, but um, that would be a painful, painful ride down.
0: Yep. Hey, it's possibility thinking. It's a worst case scenario. It's an ugly scenario. Okay, let's look at a possible best case scenario. And let's say this is a post-election rally on steroids. Again, we've seen a lot of studies that, you know, what sets up a great fourth quarter is a poor third quarter. And we end up with a poor third quarter, right? But you get a lot of studies where, you know, the market, the more it drops, the bigger it bounces. And so, what if we get the rally, but it's just amplified by some other factors. And in turn, we begin a new bull market. So, you know, some factors you consider, of course, we really are peak inflation. It really is rolling over and inflation could significantly drop into year end. There's very plausible and defensible arguments and some data that backs that up so that could happen. Stocks generally do well in that environment. Investor sentiment is also, according to least, um, days ago as the AAII study, the most bearish since March of 2009. That was just days before we began the epic bull market that we had. And there's only been four times in the last 35 years where we've seen that sort of bearishness. And in all four times, we had strong returns to 12 months that followed for an average of 30%. So, that's what I'm using for my average for a stock market return in the next year. I'll we'll call it 30%. I could almost even go more dramatic and say more, but let's just stick to that 30% gain for stocks. 10-year treasury yields continue to still move up, but again, not as much as as many would expect. I think the Federal Reserve is much more data dependent and maybe they only raise rates up to like 450 or something. Inflation drops maybe closer to 4% in the months ahead. How about that scenario? Does that feel better? Well, it feels better, but... <laughs> the rates part
1: gets me thinking, though. In a bull case, if inflation is coming down and the 10-year is a, a barometer for forward-looking growth and inflation... We would need stronger growth to keep that rate path going. Mm-hmm. But if the market's going to be rallying 30%, the markets, a you know, in the short term, uh, was a what is it, short term, it's a voting machine, long-term it's a weighing machine, and I think That's they're going right. to be voting for, you know, stronger growth Well, probably that would coincide with a bottoming of weak earning sentiment and start to, to move higher. I think the interesting part would be, we probably need a weaker dollar. You know, sixty percent of the S P five hundred earnings come from overseas. The strong dollar is going to lop a lot of that off. But the rates want to be interesting. It'd be interesting to see how high we could get in a bull market. But again, you know, today, you know, as we're talking, rates, you know, uh, I think earlier this week to almost touched four percent. Now they're down on three seventy, and the market sold off. So, yeah. But yeah, it'll be a better feeling to have a up thirty percent than down thirty percent.
0: I mean, on these scenarios, I do sort of struggle a little bit with the interest rate forecast. I mean, again, the bond market is on pace for its worst year ever. It depends on what maturity and type of bond you're looking at. And it kind of just feels as if we've got to be near sort of that high for this cycle, almost irrespective of what happens. I mean, obviously, there's something that happens. But I do think the Federal Reserve is data dependent. Mm -hmm. You know, if they see inflation gets better, I don't think they're really going to raise as much as the market feels right now. So I have to admit, I do struggle with some of those interest rate forecasts, though. I have thrown my hat to the camp that the multi-decade bull market in bonds is over. I know we've been people have been anticipating that for 20 years. I think it's finally dead. So, anyway, well great. So, Matt, given the name of the show is of course Weighing the Risk and we've just talked about a bunch, but what are some other risks you think that investors should be thinking about?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what's going on in Europe right now and spillover effects associated with that into the broader economy. What does that mean? Obviously, you know, we've seen UK markets perform quite significantly poor and then also the boe come in and do some pretty unprecedented acts as well So will be interesting to spill over risk associated with that the other one is you know when we're looking at earning sentiment it continues to be inherently very weak and it's been really weak in overseas markets particularly in emerging markets and what does that mean for those that have been you know really structuring portfolios in a geographically diversified manner because if we look at international equities, they've underperformed U.S. equities. I think on 53 consecutive rolling one-year periods, which is just three wow. shy of the all-time record. And so that is a concern because yeah, I think people are getting a little frustrated of you know focusing on the geographical diversification. And you know, what does that mean going forward if earnings sentiment continues to be weak over there?
0: Yeah. What about kind of on that point, and this is more of a potential argument for still long-term global diversification, is that how much weight do you put on the concept of deglobalization right now? A lot of people are really talking that up and we're sort of at a kind of an inflection point for a lot of the market relationships we've seen over the last few decades. How much do you consider deglobalization as being an impact on kind of impacting relative performance in the years ahead?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it will, just given the issues we have with supply chains and more of the geopolitical tensions, too, that we've had, namely with China. Uh, I think that onshoring trend has already begun and is likely to continue. Also, technology, I think, is going to help with the onshoring, different technology uh, efficiencies in the United States. You know, again, folks more on home domestic bias. I think that's going to foster more deglobalization. Also, it was interesting from, you know, out of the financial crisis to probably the last, you know, probably two years ago. You had coordinated global monetary policy, and now we do not have coordinated global monetary policy. You have some banks are easing. China is one of them. Japan other. Uh You have some that are being extremely restrictive, like the United States. You have some that are doing QE, some that are doing QT. So that aspect, I think, has changed. And so the deglobalization is not just around supply chains and onshoring, but it's also around policy.
0: Yeah personally, as a defender of global portfolios, and I've taken many questions over the years, it does seem like if central bank policy is differing, if economic cycles are differing, that again, maybe we'll see a benefit to international diversification in the years ahead. Anyway, so great. One last question, just come back to the top question that, well, there's really two top questions, of course. And the one is, have we really seen peak inflation? And if so, how far and how fast can we drop?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we have. Numerically, that's been proven out. We've dipped now for the past two months. But to say that we've peaked at inflation uncertainty is probably wrong. We still have a significant amount of inflation uncertainty. So while we might be trending lower from a notional perspective on a percentage basis, the amount of uncertainty that's being impacted, impacting those numbers has not abated. We still have supply chain issues. We still have Obviously, what happened with the Nord Stream pipeline, that's going to disrupt energy prices. Um, you still have energy prices in terms of crude oil being impacted by what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, as well as you know, again, general demand trends. And those are big inputs into inflation. You also have mortgage rates that are hitting, you know, six, seven percent, and that's gonna impact home prices, rental prices that impact inflation as well. So yeah, we've hit numerically the peak inflation, but peak inflation uncertainty is still there, so it's going to be a significant risk to portfolios going forward because if it surprises to the upside, what does that mean for Federal Reserve policy? Surprises to the downside, you know, perhaps the Fed's going to, you know, pump the brakes a little bit and equities can rally off of that. So, uncertainty is not not slowed.
0: Yeah, well said. Well, Matt, thanks for coming on the show. How can listeners stay in touch and learn more about what you're doing at Spider Research? Yeah.
1: So one of the easiest ways, go to ssga.com and go into our ETF section. We have a market trends page where all of our most recent publications are posted. We post weekly, a weekly different investment ideas. We have quarterly market outlooks. We also have our chart pack, the monthly economic view. It really sort of takes the temperature of the marketplace and that's on there. And then, of course, people can also follow me on LinkedIn, regularly posting things on that.
0: Awesome. That's great. And also for those who want to get more about Orion Risk Intelligence Scenarios, you can, as always, still go to the hiddenlevers.com website. And if you go to the upper right-hand corner, there'll be that hamburger menu. And if you go into that, you'll see a scenarios drop down. And in that, there's a lot of cool stuff. So first of all, you've got a library of all these scenarios. You have a library of all the old war room webinars. You have stress testing tools and another really cool tool, of course, is the hedging wizard. So again, some really good resources there. So again, Matt, thanks for coming on again. You know, I've been on the road and I always get great feedback from people who hear your presentations and the insights you're providing. So, and thank you for being nice to me on my scenarios.
1: Yeah, well, it sounds like you just talked to my parents on the road then.
0: All right, well, that will do it for this month. Invest well and be well. We'll be back next month. If you have any feedback on this podcast or suggestions for possible scenarios, please let me know at my email, rusty at orion.com. Thanks for listening to Weighing the Risk and thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. Wang the Risk is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Strategist at Orion Advisor Solutions. If you have any feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send me a note at my email address, rusty at orion.com. All opinions expressed on this podcast, including from our podcast guests, are solely their own opinions and don't reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information that participants consider reliable.